podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. back to the Go in the Match podcast. Today I'm joined by Paul John Dykes of the Celtic State of Mind, an award-winning Celtic podcast. John is a massive Celtic fan and a host of the biggest Celtic podcast out there. Paul, thanks for giving me time today, mate, and coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Just thank you for asking us on. It's always a pleasure to speak to other football fans, you know, from all different walks of life, mate. So um, I'm really chuffed. Okay, so can you take us back to your childhood following Celtic? Where were you born and how did your love for Celtic Football Club begin? I think a lot about this. I really do, Mike, um, because when I think about Celtic, I just think about them as having an omnipresence in my life. You know, you can't remember a time when Celtic wasn't part of that, even when you were too young to get involved and go to the games. So yeah. I, I'm from a place called Fife in Scotland. It's a region and there's a a huge mining heritage in Fife. So I, I lived in all the small mining villages and there was small communities within that. And, you know, although you've got five football clubs, senior clubs like Wraith Rovers, East Fife, Cowdenbeath and Dunfermline, yeah. what you find is there's a huge, um, you know, bubble of Celtic supporters as well as Rangers supporters, it's got to be said. And I think... With my own family heritage, my mother was a Maguire from Donegal stock, if you go further back. And like many families coming over in the 1840s during the potato famine, they've come to Fife via Hamilton. So it's the same, there's so many of these people all over, you know, yeah. Liverpool and Edinburgh and Glasgow and New York. And so you grow up, you don't, you, there's never comes a point where you make a choice, I'm going to support Celtic. It's It's made for you. It's made before you even... Um, enter this world. So <laughs> I arrived in 1978 and I was the third of four kids. Uh, I just remember my dad, um, you know, coming home from the game and it was probably early 80s, I've got to say, because of where we were living at the time. And it was the old double denim with the, the Celtic bar scarf. <laughs> and, you know, there was like a, every Saturday there was this kind of feeling in the house that you're just waiting on your dad coming home from the game your mum's making the dinner, 
you can actually see, you can remember the, the results coming through in the old sports programmes on a Saturday, yeah. early, early evening. So I can remember talk about this young guy called Charlie Nicholas scoring all these goals for Celtic. And I knew my dad was there watching it. And then he would come home and there was a strange kind of dichotomy. It was, um, you know, cigarettes, booze and chewing gum to try and kill the, <laughs> the smell. Uh, but you know what? Looking back, he deserved all that because that was his only really outlet from... He, he was a pit man, my dad. He worked down the pits. So him and his mates and my my mum's uh, cousins and brothers and uncles, they all used to go in the same bus. Right. Uh, and there was an excitement. There was just, uh, you know, waiting for him to come home and then fill your head full of stories about going to the games, going to the match, of course. Um, and he always brought home this programme that was in his inside pocket. So that was my first memory as a Celtic. It was just always there. And I was, you know, it's, it's become a bit of a cliche, but I was born into that way of life. Yeah. I suppose if you, like, if you were coming home telling you all the stories, you were probably sitting there thinking, you know, I can't wait to get those stories for myself as well when I grow up. Definitely. There's this thing, obviously, and I get it now from... Uh, my own wee boy, whereby, you know, your dad's your superhero. He just looks massive and he looks like, a, <laughs> he, you know, no, nothing could touch him. Uh, and so from a very young age, you want to be part of that. And he's coming home and you think, your ambition at that age is to come home having had a few jars and uh, smoking <laughs> with your mates. All of that came later. Uh, I don't <laughs> smoke, obviously. But uh, you wanted to go to the games and you wanted to be part of what I now understand was a, a community. Uh, Celtic supporters, many like-minded people, all for this common cause. And, you know, people who are not into football won't get it. But I could probably tell that story to any football fan and they'll get it, you know, regardless of your colours and, and your beliefs, you know. 100%. So have you, have you got any memories from the first match you went to and going to Celtic Park for the first time? I do, because looking back, I had, I'd wanted to go for a long time before... Um, you know, he finally repented and allowed me to go because <laughs> I didn't understand at the time. But obviously working down the pit, it was tough. It was tough going. Uh, they were working overtime. They were, you know, and at that time, they're, they're basically bringing home the bacon because the yeah. mother would be staying at home looking after the three and then four kids as it became. Uh, and this was his outlet. So he didn't want a young guy like me slowing him down because he, he was going for a few pints with his mates, you know. But eventually what happened was in 1987, uh, I finally went. And again, this whole community thing. So I was there with my brother and my cousins and my uncles. We were all there. And strangely enough, my dad wasn't there because by that time, because he was a pit man, um, he had gone abroad to find other work after the miners' strike. Okay. And so he was working abroad at this stage. And my uncle took me and it was Celtic versus Liverpool. And it was the Tommy Burns testimonial, 1987. So I've always had an affinity with Liverpool. I've always, you know, I've, if someone says to me, who's your English team? I would always say Liverpool. Probably simply because of my memory of my first game. Yeah. But since then, I've learned so much about the club. Uh, and again, there, there is so many similarities between the clubs and the cities. So I've got great phone phone memories of that game. And of course, it was for the, the late, great Tommy Burns as well, who was a figure who popped up throughout my Celtic supporting life. And I was hooked. Now, my brother might tell you he was hooked, but I remember he wasn't that up for it, you know, because back then it was it was the old Celtic Park, um, probably not dilapidated as such, but it was certainly nothing like what it is now where you go to the game yeah. and it's a real experience and it's a lot more comfortable now than it was. <laughs> I loved it from the first moment I went in. 
it's like you see the videos sometimes and it's probably guys like you and me and they take their kids along for the first time, they film it on their phones. I can imagine what that felt like because you can feel the atmosphere, you know, as soon as you go in. And you remember daft wee things like smells and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. You spent half the game watching the supporters as well as the action on the pitch. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, just the green and white hoops, seen them in wonderful Technicolor, uh, but playing the great Liverpool team because, again, that brilliant kit, you know, King Kenny was the, the player manager at that stage. He come he came on as a substitute that day. John <laughs> Barnes, Peter Beardsley. Liverpool had a great side as well. So yeah, great fond memories. And that was the pre-season uh, before our centenary year. So it was a great time to start going to the games. So obviously, before COVID happened, what would a standard match look like for yourself now? Because I've always said I want to go up to Celtic Park and experience it, but I've never been, never got around to doing it. So. What would a standard match look like for yourself now? And what the people that are listening that haven't been to Celtic Park, what could they expect in and around the ground for maybe away fans going there? Well, what I would say is I had the, the real pleasure of bringing over a couple of uh, St. Pauli fans a few years ago. So, right. in answering your question, I had to plan, you know, the experience because it's something, do you ever take it for granted? Maybe not. Uh, but, you know, it becomes the norm, uh, yeah. it becomes the routine. So I started thinking, right, what is the Celtic Park experience? So these two St. Pauli fans came over. So you go to the, I, I travel from outside Glasgow. I'm, I'm from Fife, as I say. So you travel through, and I used to go through in supporters' buses. I've spent time on three supporters' buses through the years. But, you know, in my adult life, I've always taken the car. But what I wanted to do was take them down to the Gallagate. Now, the Gallagate is where the Celtic bars are situated. If you're a music fan, you'll have heard of the, the Glasgow Barrowlands, which is a brilliant music venue, kind of world-renowned venue down there. Yeah. Right next door to the Barrowlands, until fairly recently, was a wee boozer called the Baird's Bar. It was a Celtic pub. And I think within the area, within the Gallagher, it was the original kind of Celtic pub. There's loads of them now. There's loads of pubs, and there's loads of kind of trendy Celtic Irish bars in that. Yeah. But the Baird's was authentic. I mean, the, the memorabilia on the, on the walls was nicotine stained. There was always a band in the corner playing. So I took, I took, um, and by the way, when the, when the bands were playing at the Barras, you know, the Pogues or Primal Scream or all these Celtic supporting bands, they would always pop into the Beards for a pint as well. Um, and, and, you know, rub shoulders with Celtic fans. So you go down the Gallagate, then you can walk up to the stadium from there. So you can go in and you're basically amongst the Celtic fans pre-match. The stadium now is a completely different beast to what it was when I started going. So you've got what we call the Celtic Way, which is, is, a, is basically a pathway where, you know, the buses can drive up the Celtic Way to the front entrance at Celtic Park. So on a European night and you're playing maybe Barcelona, PSG, the fans are there yeah. uh, because they want to see, as well as our own players, they want to see the opposition arriving and all that kind of stuff. And then you can actually go to Celtic Park now and spend a bit of time outside the ground before you go in. And it's incredible because you meet so many people that they're only associates through Celtic. You don't work with them. You don't live near them. But you can go to Celtic Park and there's pockets of people that you know and you've got to know through the years. The only thing missing for me, and it's something I've suggested to the club, is there should be live music outside as well. You know, we've got a nice wee area. I think Man City might do it. There's a nice wee area and it's in the uh, shape of a clover, but nothing happens there. So 
there should be a bandstand and they should have live music there as well. And, you know, you've got beautiful things like the, the statues of the likes of Jimmy Johnston and Jock Steen, Billy McNeil, Brother Alfred. And, you know, these St. Pauli fans that came over were blown away by the experience. And then, of course, you get into the stadium and that just takes the thing to another level entirely. Yeah. I think some of you touched on the edge with the God with what you suggested to the club because I know Liverpool, obviously, since we've had the new main stand in and around the ground, it's been, you know, there's been changes around there. Um, and very much the same as what you're saying there. We've had, like, people playing guitars, playing Liverpool songs, so the atmosphere is already brewing before you've even got in the ground, and that's yeah. a very similar thing. I think you know, football and music goes hand in hand. When you when yeah. you think about Liverpool, you think about the amazing football players that they've produced, the teams that they've produced, but also you think about the the music, don't you? I mean, the obvious ones from the Beatles and uh, all that, right through to the modern day, and and you know the Laz and Shaq and Echo and the Bunny Men and all these guys. Liverpool have got that, they really do and I think Glasgow's got it as well mm. so I'm surprised that we've not caught and done to that and I'm hoping that someday we do when we're allowed to rub shoulders with each other and be part of that community again So I can imagine you've done your fair share of away days as well, going to different grounds in the SPL, have you got any ones that you particularly enjoy going to? Well you know this, I don't think it'll be a surprise to many um, Celtic fans but there was a period of time when going to Ibrox was just you know, it wasn't the same as it was back in the day because Celtic dominated, as you know, Celtic have dominated for the best part of the last decade. Um, and, you know, people from outside the game maybe look inside Scottish football and say, well, there's no competition. It's better when there's a, a challenge from the other side of Glasgow and all this kind of stuff. And yes, you know, when you're going toe-to-toe with, with a great Rangers side, as we have done over the years, brilliant. But there's a different element when you're going and you're actually, you know, you're having a, a discussion with your mates and you're saying, will it be 4 nothing? will it be 5 nothing?" And that was the state of play for three or four years going to Ibrox. Mm-hmm. So those memories, being in the Broomlone stand, were, were quite incredible because it was almost as if you were taking over the stadium. The noise that Celtic made in that stadium was quite astonishing. But unfortunately, in the last couple of seasons, that's all changed because they've reduced the ticket allocation. And for me, they've actually ru- ruined the atmosphere, which is a massive element of that rivalry and those games, which, you know, it's created a reputation, a global reputation for being one of the best derbies in the world. But you take away the fans from that and it takes a huge element of that rivalry and that, you know, the whole the whole derby, um, you know, that that goes right across the water, goes to America, goes to show People know about Celtic v Rangers. But for you know, for reasons known only to the, the Rangers board, they stopped that and they actually took our all- uh, allocation right down to the bare minimum, which mm. is a shame. It really is a shame. Like you but say, that, that's a great away day, a fantastic away day. Like you say, with the old firm, I've got to admit myself, I I won't tune into, you know, Hearts v Aberdeen. But if when the old firm's on, you know that the date and the time that it's on, and you'll tune into Sky Sports and like you say. Why is that they took the allocation away? Do you think do you think it's to, to take away from the intimidation on and give something to the players on the pitch and they haven't got that raw atmosphere there? Well, you know, I just, I've spoken over the years um, through the podcast and writing books and, and various other things to a lot of ex-players. And the one thing that I... It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. 
Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I take from their experience is that that kind of, um, you know, that cauldron of atmosphere, you, you can feed off it. Mm. So although maybe, they, maybe some people think that's the reason, I think what it was actually, um, and I, I'm not saying this just to throw a span on the works, I think Rangers wanted to increase their own season ticket. Oh um, allocation. So in order to do that, they had to allocate less tickets to Celtic fans. Um, and that was a, a based on a financial thing where they wanted that money up front at the beginning of the season. That's what I believe to be the reason. Mm. But I mean, Celtic, as I say, we were going to Ibrox and winning um, quite convincingly for a few seasons there. And obviously we lorded it up because that's what you do when you're a football fan. And mm. all, that went down like a lead balloon. You know, we had... Uh, players like Lee Griffiths coming up and tying Celtic scarves to the Ibrox goals and all that kind of stuff. And that went, went down like a, a lead balloon. So I think it was a combination of all of these things that led to that decision. Something I was really interested to get your thoughts on um, was the safe standing that you've got at Celtic Park. Mm. So being a Liverpool fan myself, obviously I, I, I remember watching um, a video the Anfield wrapped it up, going up there and seeing how it functions, what goes on and you know what it entails and how it operates. What's your thoughts on safe standard being a Celtic fan? And has that helped the atmosphere in the ground? It's helped the atmosphere at Celtic Park uh, because of the Green Brigade. And again, the Green Brigade are a massive part of that Celtic Park experience. Mm. Not just for, uh, you know, tourist-style fans who might come over for the experience, but day-to-day, week-to-week fans like myself. I mean, the Green Brigade have been injected um, a, a real chorus to the Celtic Stadium. I think... What happened when we came back to Celtic Park after it was redeveloped? You know, there was always this concern because you got used to what the atmosphere was like and you were fed tales all the way through your youth as to what it was like in the 60s and 70s. And there was a fear that we were going to lose a bit of that. Yeah. But then, you know, on a European night, on a big, uh, a big night like that or against Rangers, the atmosphere at Celtic Park is absolutely astonishing. Yeah. 
in other games, you know, before, uh, prior to the Green Brigade getting organised, in other games, it could be a bit of a morgue. I'm going to be honest with you. If you were playing St Mirren on a Wednesday night, and, you know, I don't think the atmosphere was the same. So there was a, a prelude that, to the Green Brigade, which was the, 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 um, the Jungle Boys. And basically the whole idea of that was to inject atmosphere back into the stadium. But the Green Brigade, what they've done is they've injected that and more. And it was through consultation with the group and through supporters, um, groups like the Celtic Trust as well, that we pushed um, as a fan base, pushed for a safe standing. Yeah. Now, the biggest concern for all football fans is thinking back to uh, Hillsborough, you know, in 1989. Yeah. Uh, and as I said before, having that affinity with Liverpool as well, and I think a lot of Celtic fans have that. Um, so sympathetic to the cause, uh, you know, the justice campaign as well for all those years, and, you know, and indebted to Professor Phil Scraton for his unbelievable work um, and keeping that fire burning for all that time. Yeah. Um, so on the, in the back of your mind, that's always there. Um, so basically, before the implementation of the safe standing section, I think, you know, everybody had to be convinced that it was indeed safe because, yeah. you know, we all know why we're in all-seater stadiums and we never ever want anything uh, like that to ever happen again. Um, and, you know, you, you hope that certain... Uh, groups have learned, and I, I mean groups, not fan groups, not football supporters, but I'm talking about authorities yeah. have learned from what happened at Hillsborough. Um, and, it, and it has been proven to be a safe standing section. So what you get now is 90 minutes of atmosphere emanating from that corner of the, the stadium. It's, it's quite incredible. And then, you know, the banners, the TIFO displays, um, the protests, the protests for Palestine, which made worldwide news, mm. that all emanates from that wee corner in our football stadium. So it's been quite an incredible thing, but really in modern times uh, for Celtic. Something else very similar to the safe standing I wanted to touch on. Um, I've had a Wolves fan on the podcast in my last series, and he, we discussed about the light show that they've got there in Molyneux. And I believe you've got a very similar setup as well at Paradise. Um What's your thoughts on that? Is that something that helps generate the atmosphere as well? Because, you know, watching Celtic in Europe when they played the Barcelona's, the PSG's and the light shows, for, for someone watching on TV, it does look incredible. What's that like being part of it? Does it help the atmosphere in your opinion? Well, it was an interesting one when it was introduced, you know, the disco lights, because <laughs> as a fan base, I think we kind of looked at that and thought we don't really need any assistance. We're doing okay. You know, we're, we're raising the roof as it is. Um, does it add to it? Well, I wouldn't say it, it detracts from it, certainly. Um, I, I think what we need to be aware of is, you know, getting into the realms of it becoming almost like WWF wrestling back in the day and, and trying to make something box office, which is already box office. We need to be aware of that natural raw passion that you get on a European night at Celtic Park. Uh, be careful. Don't tamper with it too much because it's already there. Don't try and fix it, you know. Yeah, don't fix something unless you know it's broken. And like you say, Celtic, one of those clubs, very iconic for the atmosphere. You, you make a good point there that you don't want to tamper with it too much because then it seemed to be not as iconic and he hasn't got that the original sort of club that you I had. Think, there. Yeah, I mean, I always maybe I'm old fashioned. Maybe it's my age. Um, I, I even think that when we score a goal and then they put on the same tune and all that kind of stuff. 
you think to yourself, just let's celebrate. But again, that's just me. I think back to some research I did on the old um, NASL back in the day when obviously the, it was in its infancy and some of the things they did uh, within the, the stadiums to try and inject atmosphere because they were basically starting from scratch, you know, so they were buying in players from all over the world and Pele went to uh, the Cosmos and everybody knows what they did. Some of the things they did were, were before their time. But they were all about, you know, the playing the music and they had things like, you know, instead of a, a penalty shootout, it was like, you know, you ran from the halfway line to, to score into the net and had the big countdown clock with the music. And it was just adding box office to football. And, you know, it was bizarre. But obviously the American audience loved that. Uh, some of the things they did were great and they've been introduced even in the Champions League. But I do think sometimes that uh, you've got to... Uh, stay true to your roots and I think the Celtic fans do a good enough job without the tannoys and without the lights definitely there's a lot of talk from um, football fans in general of uh, the likes of Celtic and Rangers how they you know get on in the Premier League and if the SBL could filter into the English leagues what's your thoughts on that and do you think that would be something that's good for Scottish football well you know we do see the arguments an, an awful lot up here and we also, we realise the limitations of the Scottish game. See, this is the big thing about Scottish football. The fans are not walking about thinking that we have a product which is, you know, up there with the top five leagues in, in Europe. Mm. But there's a lot, there's a lot good about Scottish football. Um, a massive part of that is the support. When you look at the actual average um, support, and there's a great table comes out all over Europe. It looks at the different leagues. And per head of capita, you know, when, when you look at how well supported football is in this country. Um, so there's lots that we bring to the table and there's lots that we can learn from other big nations. Now, this question about Celtic and or Rangers playing in the, the English League, I think it was viable some time ago. And again, this is just through interviewing quite a lot of people and figures who were involved. Um, but as of 1998, it's no longer been something that's been on the table. And that was because of the cross-border rules changing and people cite, you know, Welsh clubs playing in English football, etc. But these these things were decided upon for various other reasons yeah. uh, pre-1998. Celtic and Rangers wanted basically to increase the size of their clubs, um, you know, their global appeal by playing in a bigger league. I mean, that's, that's obvious. That's exactly what they wanted to do. And at that time, Celtic and Rangers were in cahoots um, to try and make that move happen. I mean, they're, they're no longer as companies, as clubs in cahoots. I mean, even the term that is widely used, the old forum Celtic and Celtic fans no longer use that term um, because it is showing some kind of an alliance to the other side. So it was something that was on the table quite seriously to the point, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, this is interesting. Celtic were very interested and had an English football club valued in 1998, and that football club was Wimbledon Football Club. Oh, really? And Celtic, Celtic were going to buy Wimbledon Football Club and actually change the registered address and change the name and become Celtic Football Club based in the English leagues. And it got to the point where, where one of the advisors at Celtic, to test the water, bought a football club in Glasgow called Clyde Bank and applied to join the Irish League just to test the water to see if we could do this cross-border thing. So, you know, that was going to be the Trojan horse that we would use as an example to then have a Celtic side in the English League. Things have changed massively now. So if it was a hypothetical question, how would we do in English football? I think I've seen a lot of disparaging comments about this fairly recently. 
what people need to realise is it wouldn't be the Celtic as we are just now with the same budget dropping into the English league. Because if that happened, it would be very difficult for Celtic to compete. We would have access to the broadcasting and the sponsorship and everything else that goes with it if we were part of that league. And obviously with a global fan base, you know, it would just elevate the club to an incredible size. Uh, you know, the flip side to that, and this is no disrespect, any English club dropping in to the Scottish League in the same way, you know, vice versa scenario, wouldn't survive two weeks because, you know, we've all seen the photo of Raheem Sterling's payslip. Now, that would keep Scottish football going for a couple of months, you know. So the, the argument's always going to be there. I think the brand of Celtic being introduced into the English League would work two ways. It would work both ways. Will it ever happen? I, I fear that it won't happen. I would like to see it happening. I'm going to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, but there's always talk of uh, some kind of Atlantic League, you know, where teams from Scotland and the Netherlands and, and various other countries come together. Mm. And, are able, and again, this is something that was on the table quite seriously uh, as recently as 20 years ago, whereby, you know, there were eight different nations looking about having a, a, a league, but there was relegation back into your domestic league. So if Celtic were, were terrible one season, as they have been this season, <laughs> they could get relegated out of the Atlantic League back into their domestic league. And then whoever wins the domestic league has, has that you know, opportunity to, to go into this Atlantic League. Mm. So, yeah, I think as a brand, as a worldwide renowned brand, uh, Celtic would be fantastic. There would be a period of um, acclimatising to that. But then what would other English clubs think, you know? You've got clubs there who would basically think you're, you're jumping the queue. You've got to start at the bottom. There's a pyramid system. You've got to work through that. Mm. Um, will it ever happen in my lifetime? I think since the pandemic, you know, all bets are off. Who knows what the future holds? I, I think it depends who you support in the English leagues, to be honest. I think, t- talking from myself as a Liverpool fan, I would love to go up to Celtic Park and I'd love for the Celtic fans to come to Anfield. But then you probably look at other teams you know, maybe your Tottenham's, your Everton's, Everton's of the world, they're probably looking at it thinking, well, Celtic or Rangers are maybe going to nick one of our European spots. Mm-hmm. That's probably the talking point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we get the same thing here in Scotland, actually, on a much smaller scale, because Celtic, for quite a few years now, have uh, been going around and reviewing this idea of having a, a reserve team, you know, a coach team within the pyramid, and I know that they do it in Spain and various other countries. Celtic first applied to do it, believe it or not, in 1968. So they were quite ahead of their time back then. Um, But they've been trying to push for it over the last few seasons. But what you get from the Scottish pyramid are teams even in the the sixth and the seventh tier saying, well, you know, where are they going to be? Because they shouldn't leapfrog us. And I can understand that argument, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's one of these debates... It'll come down to money. It'll come down to sponsorship, broadcasting rights. It always does, doesn't it? It's obviously a massive rivalry up in Scotland with Rangers. Um, something I was keen to get your opinion on was when they obviously left the SPL and went down the divisions, as a, felt, as a Celtic fan, did you prefer them not being in the league and prefer them not having that competitiveness? Or did you miss them? It's a double-edged question. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Mike. Yeah. Um, that rivalry, again, as well as supporting Celtic, that rivalry has always been there, you know. So when you get into um, supporting Celtic, the first thing you want to then do is go to your first derby. You want to go to that game. You've heard all about it. And my dad was reluctant to take me. Eventually, he did take me. And, it, you know, it's vivid in my, in my mind uh, that particular day. And it's something that has to be seen to be believed. And that's why I think it's a shame that the fan base has been 
you know, um, decimated before the pandemic uh, in the away games. So what happened in 2012? Uh, and again, this might be something that, you know, it, it consumed us for so long as football fans that maybe outside of Scotland, it's not as important um, to a lot of people. The, the Rangers football club, as we knew it, uh, were terribly run. Now, the one thing I would say to that is there are loads of people out there who just think that you're a Celtic fan, which means you hate every Rangers fan and all this kind of stuff. Most of the people I know went to school with Rangers fans. Yeah. They, they have associated and worked with Rangers fans. And, you know, you do find that a lot of them have got the exact same kind of passion for their club as you do for, for your club. Yeah. But the, the problem is obviously the sectarian element and the bigotry which exists within uh, the Glasgow Derby and, and the two rivals. And everybody knows, you know, generally what that's all about. Um, you know, historically, the Irish diaspora were Roman Catholics. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody that supports Celtic are Catholic because we are a club open to all, totally inclusive, which I think is one of the most important parts of, if you were asked me to define what is a Celtic state of mind, inclusiveness would be part of that. Yeah. So it's not about where you're from, it's where you're at. Um, as Angelo Dundee once famously said, and Ian Brown once famously said as well. And, and when Rangers got into the financial trouble that they themselves created, the Scottish game felt as though they had to be punished. Now, that didn't happen. So people around about um, football outside of Scottish think, Scottish football think, Rangers were punished and they were demoted. That didn't happen. The Rangers team, the Rangers club, as we knew it, were liquidated. So they disappeared from the face of the earth. And what you then had is you had a stadium there, Ibrox. You had a fan base, a massive, huge fan base, where this club had been part of their life for generations. I mean, a friend of mine, it's been generations of his family who have supported Rangers Football Club. Yeah. And it's as important to him as Celtic is to me. Yeah. And, then it, and then it disappeared. Why did it disappear? Was it the fans' fault? Of course it wasn't. You know, you might love or loathe Celtic or Rangers fans. Was it the Rangers fans' fault? No, of course it wasn't. You know, people say that the Rangers fans just went with the, went with the flow. You tell me if your team was going out and signing Paul Gascoigne and Brian Loudrop and Basil Bowley and, you know, later on, Tori Andre Flo for 12 million, Andre Kanchelskis, and the list is endless, by the way. Mm. Uh, at one point, would you turn around and say, where's all this money coming from? Or would you just enjoy the success? I'm, I'm being totally, brutally honestly, honest yeah. here. It's easy for me to say, ah, you should have known that something was afoot. Something was terribly afoot because they weren't paying their tax. Not only that, they were setting up schemes to avoid paying tax. And they were paying players on side letters more money than they would be able to afford to play them. So we were in a situation we didn't know at the time. Rangers were buying the German international goalkeeper, Bodo Wildner, uh, sorry, Stefan Kloss. So they buy Stefan Kloss and they pay him more money than what David Beckham was getting paid at that time. <laughs> now, no club in Scotland can afford that. So no. they found a way to afford it. And it, it, obviously that resulted in their downfall. Right? So I'm not here to dance on their grave because I always looked at the situation and said, there's Ibrox, it's still there. Mm. There's a fan base. They're still wearing a blue jersey. They still have a Rangers badge on it. But Celtic fans do not recognise, um, a huge amount of Celtic fans do not recognise them as the same club. Mm. So that, that is where, that is probably something that's a microcosm of Scottish football that 
you know, people down in England don't care about it, or maybe elsewhere they don't care unless you've got a vested interest in Celtic or Rangers. So when they disappeared, what you do as a Celtic fan is as a football fan, you know that there's going to be a Phoenix club. You know that that's going to happen. It's happened in the past. And Rangers were such a huge institution that that was always going to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be a case whereby they never, ever came back. Yeah. You know, there was never going to be a club playing out the Ibrox called Rangers and the fan base was just going to go and start supporting Queen's Park. That was never going to happen. So we knew that was going to happen, absolutely. So after that, and, and by the way, I'm talking for myself because I know loads of Celtic fans disagree with that. After that initial couple of seasons where they're not there, you're then looking at the situation whereby you think, right, we beat Barcelona in 2012, right? You want to push on from that. You want to progress in Europe. You want to get stronger. And the only way you can get stronger is by having a challenge. Yeah. Now, if you look at the nine in a row, I'm, I'm not going to take anything away from that. It's an incredible achievement, right? But some of these seasons, were we really challenged? Were we challenged? And if we were challenged, we had the financial ability to go out in January and buy a few players just to make it all a wee bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when Rangers, obviously, the Phoenix club, started in the, the lowest tier of Scottish football and they worked their way back up, and we knew that even when they got into the top league, which is now the Scottish Premiership, it was going to take time for mm-hmm. a challenge to come. And that challenge didn't come. And that's going back to the time I was talking about earlier, Mike, where we were going to Ibrox and there was, you know, is it going to be four or five nothing today? Because they were shambolically ran. You know, that, that was the, the situation as it was. Now, Rangers fans might agree or disagree. But then what happened was they, they brought in Stephen Gerrard. Now, at that time... I remember being asked about it and I said, well, am I worried as a Celtic fan? This might have been complacency, mate. Because uh, my response was, of course I'm not. He's a rookie. You know, what's he going to do? We've got Brennan Rodgers, you know. And at that time, we had a great, great side who had been invincible for a whole season. We were winning trebles. And we were so far ahead of this Rangers side that Steven Gerrard, for me, wasn't going to make any difference. Mm. But what's happened is, slowly but surely, Rangers have continued to stick to their strategy with Steven Gerrard over three seasons. And what has happened this season is a result of that, as well as Celtic regressing. So it's not all about me going on about Celtic regressing. I'm giving credit to the team who's sitting at the top of the league because Mm. they have improved vastly since the days where we were laughing at them at Ibrox. And that's where we find ourselves just now. So in answer to your question, um, when was the last time that we had like a a must-win game uh, you know, against Rangers, or when was the last time where you were playing any old team and you were you're looking at the Rangers result? It's been quite a few seasons. Yeah. But this season brings that challenge back, and now we're challenging them. Mm-hmm. Although we are the league um, title holders, they're way ahead of Celtic at the moment. So, you know, it, it's a it's a difficult season for Celtic fans to take. Uh, but from the outside looking in, you know, from a Liverpool fans' perspective, you must look at that and think, wow, what a job he's done, mm-hmm. Stevie Gerrard. And, and I'm pretty sure his stock is through the roof at the moment. I spend every single day talking about Celtic, and it's easy just to say it's all down on us. But you look at the form of Rangers this season, and you compare it even to Brendan Rodgers' first season in charge of Celtic, and there's only two points of a difference. So mm. for Celtic to be up there this season, we had to be at the top of our game, and we haven't been. Um, so the challenge is real now. The, the, big, the big question would be, Mike, how many Celtic supporters recognise the Rangers that we're facing today with the Rangers of old? And that will rumble on forever, never, never. Mm. I prefer, particularly when Celtic aren't doing so well, 
to look after my own backyard and look at our own problems. We've got far more problems than to to look back on, on everything that's happened because that is now in the past, as far as I'm concerned. We need to look at the problems Celtic are facing now and put them right. So you talk about the problems that obviously Celtic are going through at the moment. You've just come off the back of nine in a row, which is obviously an incredible achievement for the club and the teams and the managers that have all been over the nine years and the nine seasons. What would you say is the main issue? If you had to pin it on one thing, would you say it's the transition of Rodgers to Neil Lennon? and Or would you say it's the players? Is there anything specific that you would say it was? You know, it's, it's, it's actually so much easier now um, to look back, obviously, and, and pinpoint certain areas where this started. You know, because it's not just been this season. It's been an accumulation. I think this season has been a perfect storm. Mm. Uh, a resurgent Rangers, the way that we dealt with COVID, um, the casualties that we've had and still have as a result of that, it's a perfect storm this season. But if you take it back a, th- a few years, Brennan Rodgers came in. We were league winners. You know, Neil Lennon had won three titles. Ronnie Dyla had won two, five in a row. They were going for six at that point. The magical number in Scotland is always 10 because Celtic won nine in a row in the 60s and 70s. And Rangers were nine in a row in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and obviously, we won it up until last season. So, Brennan Rodgers came in, and what he did is he implemented a professionalism. Now, the thing is, you're a Liverpool fan, so you'll remember him, obviously, um, from his time at Liverpool. But there's this terminology that goes around, and it's about, you know, elite manager. Mm. Who's an elite manager? Who's not an elite manager? I think an elite manager is someone who has won a European trophy. Um, and who's managing in one of the top five leagues in Europe for me but that could be argued all day I think what Brennan Rodgers did when he came to Celtic is he implemented elite practices that obviously he had seen at clubs like Chelsea and Liverpool so he came came to Celtic and he implemented that and it took everything up a notch so the, the standards of everything improved it really really did and every single Celtic fan, and by the way, if anybody's out there saying, oh, you know, I didn't buy into Brennan Rodgers, you're lying. We all bought into Brendan Rodgers, right? We absolutely did buy into Brendan Rodgers. But what comes with that, and what comes with that level of manager is a level of control, you know? Yeah. And what you're operating with at Celtic is a, a, very, a very powerful CEO in Peter Lowell. So there will come a point where the level of ambition that Brendan Rodgers has and the level of control that, that Peter Lowell is going to allow him, um, that, that will hit a ceiling. Mm. And then they two figures will clash, and that's exactly what happened at Celtic. Yeah. So Brendan Rodgers, the one thing, potentially two things that I would say about his time, because he was brilliant for Celtic, right? And we were all disappointed when he left, and the manner in which he left wasn't yeah. right. Mm. And, and to be honest with you, the way that he conducted himself up to that point I think we were disappointed because we expected more from him because he always conducts himself so, so well. And the way that that, the final days and weeks was wrong, it wasn't the Brennan Rodgers that we had grown to love. Um, You know, so what then happened was Brennan Rodgers wanted a a collection of players signing targets. And, you know, he was given Peter Lowell that job. That's your job. Go and do the deals. And the players, the players in question, um, are guys like Castagne, Pacini, John McGinn, famously. We could have John McGinn for about three million quid. Uh, massive Celtic fan with, with ties to the club through his granddad, who used to be the chairman. 
and he wanted to sign for Celtic, but Celtic failed to do the deals. Now, that's not on Brendan Rodgers. That's yeah. on Peter Lowell. So even though we were dominating Scottish football, there was lots of things happening behind the scenes that weren't right. But as I keep saying on the podcast, success masks a million deficiencies. So, right, you spend loads of money on all these players and they're all bad signings, but we're still winning the league. So yeah. are we going to focus on that? Probably not. That's just the nature of football. It's only now that we're looking back on it. So our recruitment policy has not been the best for quite some time, quite a few years. We were very good at bringing in uh, fairly young players at a decent price. And you're talking two and a half to three and a half million, sometimes even below that. And then giving them the experience, giving them the Champions League experience, putting them on a platform and invariably selling them to English clubs. So we did it very, very well. You know, Van Dyke's the best example, of course. Van Dyke, who went to Southampton and Liverpool, and he's up there with one of the best defenders in the world. Now, you could see that. You could see that class. Yeah. But, you know, it takes a wee bit of convincing outside of Scottish football that Van Dyke's worth an 80 million quid. You need to then play on a different platform before you get and attain that value, of course. And we know that. There's a ceiling. But Brennan Rodgers wanted to bring in certain things, and Peter Lowell didn't deliver. So it was quite clear to the fan base that there was something wrong. Brennan Rodgers then tried to make a move. There was a big money offer in the Chinese Super League and he started saying to certain players, uh, you know, Moussa Dembele, who at the time was our star player, that, you know, we're going to take you to this club. So he was doing a lot of things that just weren't right. Yeah. But what happened was it did highlight, and it certainly highlights now, it brings to focus now some of the things that were wrong with the club that are now unravelling. So if you go for three or four seasons where you don't find your Moussa Dembele, you don't find another Edward or a Van Dijk or a Wanyama, and all you're left with is signings like Patrick Clamalla or you know, guys that are not actually doing it for you. It, it only takes three or four very, very good windows and three or four very, very bad windows for your challenger to catch up somewhat. So that, that's one element of it. There's been a bit of, um, for me, uh, complacency uh, for the Celtic board not to take seriously the challenge that Rangers were making last season before the pandemic hit us first time round. Um, and then it's come to roost. It's come to roost. So, you know, outside Scottish football, they might be looking at Celtic and saying, they've just been knocked out of a cup and the, the Celtic fans are protesting outside the stadium. What's that all about? They've just won quadruple trebles and all that kind of stuff. But the backstory is much deeper than that, you know. Yeah. been a lot of unhappy fans for some time. There is also a huge amount of fans that whilst they're winning, they won't question anything. So, yeah, it has unravelled spectacularly this season. Neil Lennon is not anywhere near the standard of manager that we had in Brendan Rodgers. The culture of the club has changed since Brendan Rodgers left. A lot of the things that he's implemented are no longer there. And we're seeing it all come into fruition. We've got a team that doesn't seem to have any kind of game plan. Uh, we've got a management team who can't change the game in match. Uh, and it's all coming to fruition. So I think Celtic, as a board, thought, we'll just throw some money at this in the summer and it'll be fine. So we buy a striker from West Ham for five million quid. We bring Shane Duffy up. The loan deal costs us a few million. We spend £5 million on a goalkeeper who's a Greek internationalist. You know, the only signing that has really been worth it has been David Turnbull, who was a guy that was playing for Motherwell. You know, so we spent all this money and the vast majority of the signings have been flops. So you think you're, you're enhancing the squad by keeping your best players and bringing in another half a dozen players, but you're keeping unhappy players at the team because Edouard's been wanting to move for a while, Christie wants a move, AC Milan are interested, Anaya 
Olivier and Cham wants to move back to France. We kept them all thinking we're on the charge for the league, but it's actually created a bit of a a split within within Celtic. So yeah, perfect storm, and quite frankly, we've blown it. We've absolutely blown it this season. You produce content yourself through uh, Celtic State of Mind, the podcast. How did you get into setting that up, and is that something that you've always wanted to do? Well, I used to uh, listen to the Anfield Rap. Uh, I listened to that a lot, you know, just even when I was out running and stuff like that. And I loved what the guys did. I really, really loved seeing it growing. But I had no intention of doing anything like that because I was basically, I was concentrating on my writing back then. Okay. Um, and I wrote, uh, or I have written four books on Celtic. Okay. And what I noticed was during the writing um, and the promotional process is you release a book and then you get a spike. And I think there's an interest in the book probably for about three months. And then it kind of flatlines. And then you have to write another one. Yeah. You know, so, so it's not like a, a band releases an album, then you can tour it for a couple of years, and then another album. It's like it peaks, and then it drops right down to a flatline. Yeah. And I noticed that like immediately. There was this massive lift when my first book came out in 2013. And then I was like, right, I need to write another one now. And so I was very prolific, and I, I did release them very quickly. Uh, apart from the one that's just about to be released this year, this is my second coming if you want to uh, refer to the stone roses because it's taken me five years to get this one put together uh, to the point where i've retired uh semi-retired from writing because it's been a tough tough gig getting this one together but that's what i noticed but what happened when i started releasing books was uh, celtic podcast started asking me for uh, a q a or a chat and up until then as i say my only real knowledge of podcasting was the anfield rap which i loved so i started um you know, quite enjoying that and then starting to listen to the Celtic podcast. There's a few absolutely brilliant podcasts out there, uh, the Celtic Underground, which I think is one of the oldest football podcasts going. You know, it's, it's been going forever. So I spoke to the guys and I spoke to the homeboys and a few others. And then, you know, after my second book, I kind of started thinking this would be a good way, not of constantly promoting the same thing and flogging the same dead horse for, for the next three years until another book comes out. But it certainly gives you a platform so that you can continually discuss Celtic. Yeah. And so I was looking around the, the other podcasts and seeing what they were doing. And as I said there, they're doing great, great work. And I wanted to do something a wee bit different at the time. So when I, when I launched it, it was, it was based on interviewing not just ex-players, but people with a Celtic state of mind. So I had to try and figure out what that was in my own mind um, before before actually launching it. And the, the, it, it's influenced by, I don't know if you remember the, the album Illmatic by Nas back in 1994. No. There's a track on that. It's a great album. And there's a track on it called NY State of Mind. And I've always liked that term. And then it pops up in lyrics, Nina Cherry, uh, Buffalo, you know, Buffalo stands, it's in there, state of mind. So I've always liked that. What is your state of mind? Uh, sometimes it's it's quite a um, a dark state of mind. You know, sometimes it's a, a bright state of mind. And I think during the, the pandemic, it's been so, so important to look at state of mind. You know, yeah. everybody's state of mind. So a Celtic state of mind for me is about being maybe sometimes on the outside, sometimes being a rebel, uh, which is good, uh, but also the inclusion um, having a bit of flair, a bit of creativity, and often overcoming adversity, and I mean real adversity, not just because uh, you know a few results aren't stacking up. Uh, <laughs> freedom of thought, but also community and charity. So a Celtic state of mind. So I started speaking to people from all walks of life, 
from normal supporters to guys that were in bands to ex-players. And, you know, I've, I've interviewed Neil Lennon, John Barnes, uh, Ronnie Dyla, uh, Kenny Dalglish, James Allen out of Las Vegas, Saul Davis out of the band James. And it goes on and on and on and people from literature and film. And that was what it was. It was a one once a week podcast. Um, and what I did to try and get the, the, uh, the levels and the production and all that as good as it could be, I basically um, financed it by booking into a recording studio once a month, getting four guests in on that day, and then putting out their podcast once a week until the next session. I did that for ages, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. But I realised that you know there was a much bigger and wider scope for the podcast out there. So I decided that we had to try and do that. Yeah. And the idea was to have a daily bulletin. I thought it was going to be a 10-minute bulletin. I really did, like a news bulletin, right? Yeah. But the way that that's developed is we go out every single day and it's live and it's interactive. So we don't get people currently dialing in or phoning in, but we have a, a team of contributors that's a loving strong. And then we get the comments coming in and they're all fed in from social media. Yeah. So they come in from Twitter and Facebook uh, and YouTube. So, you know, we, we've gone out on a single day, we've gone out to up to 91,000 wow. of an audience in one day. Now, to compare that to where we were, let's say, in January 2019, our monthly audience was 8,500. That's incredible. And then one day at the beginning of this week, because obviously Celtic aren't doing so well, so people want to talk about it, uh, on one day, we went out to over 91,000 uh, fans, which is it's tremendous. Um, and I love the fact that people can come on and give you a view that slowly but surely changes your view as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. And it's all about that. It's about debate, and it's not about what I think. Yeah, and my yeah. view can get changed, and hopefully sometimes my view can change other people's views. So this year, over the last – it was only since August that we started doing that. Um, but since I've done it, as I say, insp inspired by the likes of the, the Anfield Drap, that's where we are now. The, the Celtic State of Mind hopefully is going to continue to grow. So finally, the podcast is centred around going the match. So of every podcast we do, and I want to end by asking, what are your top three favourite matches you've ever been to or seen? Now, the first one, will I go 3-2-1? So the, the top one will be at the top. Okay. Yeah. The top three games that I've been to, the best game I've ever been to was probably the worst game of football I've been to, right? But <laughs> because of the result and because of what it meant, it was very, very important. Okay. So... If I go to, to number one, people who support Celtic will think, wow, that, that cannot be better than number three. We've won a quadruple treble, which is astonishing. And unfortunately, we couldn't be at the game that clinched the quadruple treble against Hearts because of everything that's going on. But the other three, the other three trebles, uh, they were clinched in Scottish Cup finals. So you've got Aberdeen, which was an invincible treble. You've got Motherwell, which was the, the double treble. Uh, and then you've got Hearts, which was the, the treble treble. Now, I was sitting next at the treble treble. I know a lot of people will say Aberdeen was the greatest because it was written in the stars. And Tommy Rodgick scored in the last minute. And just as he scored, there was a bolt of lightning. You, wouldn't, you couldn't make it up. Really? You know, there's, a, there's a quote saying that Celtic's a fairy tale club, and sometimes you believe it. This, this time, it's quite a dark fairy tale this, this season. Uh, Tommy Rodgick scores, and we win a, a, we win a treble, an invincible treble, and nobody beat us in the whole season. Absolutely astonishing. So I, I'm not going to go for that. I'm going to go for the treble treble because of my experience of the game. And I'm sitting next to an old guy 
who had been at the three Celtic European finals, 1967, uh, 1970, 2003. He'd been at all game, all the, the three games. And he was in tears when we won the treble treble that day. He was crying. He was such an old kind of um, invalid that he couldn't even stand up. He couldn't stand up. He's sitting there with his walking chair, uh, his walking stick, sorry. And you're thinking, wow, I'm experiencing history here that I will never see again. Um, and obviously we went one better and won a quadruple treble, but I can't include any of that because a lot of that was kind of sullied by the, the world events. Yeah. But that, that would certainly that would certainly be in there. Um, and I'm going to put it in, I'm going to slot it in uh, at number three. I'm going to slot it in at number three. Now, there was, a, there was a point in my life where I never ever thought Celtic would reach a European final. But we did. Alas, we did. Um, I wasn't at the final. Uh, for reasons that are very regrettable, but I wasn't at the final. But in the lead up to that game against Porto, we beat Liverpool and we beat Liverpool at home. Um, and there was a, a rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone. Now, going back to some of the things we've spoken about and about atmospheric grounds, there are some things that if you could bottle it, you would. Uh, even the video content wouldn't do it justice. It was just two sets of fans with a, a kind of shared ethos, I guess, a shared ideology. There's there's a lot that goes through the history of Liverpool and Celtic. I mean, you go back, actually, th this is interesting for me. Uh, the relationship wasn't always good because in 66, Liverpool beat Celtic in the European Cup Winners' Cup semi-final. And the final was to be played in Glasgow and Liverpool faced Borussia Dortmund. But Liverpool beat us and down at Anfield, Bobby Lennox scored a goal that was chopped off or offside, and it was never offside. Now, I'm not that old. I wasn't at that again. But mm -hmm. what happened was the Celtic fans were so incensed at the decision that at the end of the game, they started throwing beer bottles from the behind the goals, right? And one of the beer bottles hit one of the ball boys on the head and knocked him out. He was concussed. And in actual fact, he was in a coma. Uh, so th there was a lot of kind of bad blood at that stage, and the Celtic fans were appalled at this. So when Liverpool came up to Glasgow, to play in the final against Borussia Dortmund, they were met by Celtic fans at the train station. And that's where the friendship, I think, began because we were so sorry at this terrible act down at Anfield. But the, thankfully, the young kid pulled through and, and, and he recovered. But it just shows you that the, the relationship wasn't always as good as it, it became. And yeah. then, of course, you know, you had the relationship with Steen and Shankly. Um, you took you you robbed us when you took Kenny Dalglish for four hundred and forty grand. Um, you know the Brennan Rogers thing, the Van Dyke thing, John Barnes. There's all loads of connections, but the biggest one for me is after Hillsborough coming up for the Memorial game. You know, coming up to Celtic Park and playing in that game. So I just think that all came together uh, in that one game where we played uh, Liverpool, and obviously we overcame Liverpool, and uh, it was a fantastic occasion. But the best game above all of that, I mean, above European endeavours, because people might think Barcelona. Great result. Beating Barcelona 2-1 was a fantastic result. But you look at the actual possession, right? Now, I'm doing, I'm doing this from, from memory. I think Barcelona had 81% in that game. So, yeah, I loved the fact that we beat them, but enjoyable, wow. You know, I, I'd hate playing like that. You know, you're right back <laughs> to the wall. Uh, but, yeah, it's in the history books and there's no asterisk and there's no caveat to say, you know, they battered us for a big part of that game. The most important game was 1995 and we actually played Airdrie believe it or not, in the Scottish Cup final. 
and we beat them one nothing, and the game was absolutely rubbish. We beat them one nothing. It was a ninth minute header by Pierre Van Hoydonk, and that won us our first trophy in six years, and it was our first trophy since the takeover of Fergus McCann in 1994. And that, for us as Celtic supporters, was so important because at that point we were going through the domination of Rangers. Rangers were dominating Scottish football, yeah, and we were we were trying to rebuild our club, and that was the first. That was the first sign that we were back. That was the first trophy we had won in six years. And as a young guy who was introduced during the, se- the centenary season, I thought that kind of stuff happened all the time. Mm. And then I had, you know, an, it took 10 years for us to win the league again, but it took six years for us to win a trophy, a single trophy after the 89 Scottish Cup. So that is always going to be my number one game. I don't think that'll ever, that'll ever change. And a lot of people will, will think, you know, all the big European nights beating Rangers, you'll notice not, None of the games were beating Rangers. That's interesting. That wasn't planned, by the way. Um, but yeah, that's my biggest game. But it was a terrible performance. It was just so important for us to win it. Fantastic. So I think that's a fantastic way to finish the podcast there, mate. So just before you go, just a massive thank you for giving up your time and coming on. Really appreciate it. You know what? I feel privileged that you, you got in touch, Mike, and you can get in touch anytime. And uh, if you're ever up here, we'll repay the favour. You can come and visit us and we'll, oh, I'll, uh, we'll have a wee I'll, chat. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> nice one, mate. Nice one. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed that episode and want to keep notified for future episodes, please make sure you subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave us a five-star rating. You can now follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all at Go In The Match to keep updated for future episodes and updates on the podcast. Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct-to-Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Social Podcast Network. Sports 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 Social Podcast Network. Network.